I did a lot of research into lumberjack folklore. Specifically, they call the cryptids, they call them fearsome critters, especially in the Great Lakes region. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Curiouser and curiouser. One of the great joys of being a reader and discovering new books is finding that one thing often leads to another. A reference or an illusion or a genre or an author will take you down a path that you didn't expect to go down. Or perhaps you are, like me, a Wikipedia person who stumbles upon a a random article and then 45 minutes later you find yourself reading about the reproductive habits of alpacas in Peru. And you don't know how you got there. Today, we are taking a bit of a trip down the rabbit hole. We have challenged our fellow book lovers to find a book that they discovered by going down an interesting path to get there. So I'm very curious as to what the books they have chosen. And again, the path of how they got from their normal everyday life down this particular rabbit hole to a very peculiar title. Now, I am joined today by my book friends, Mark, Virginia, and Gabriel, to talk about our flights of fancy. And since Mark seems to be at the top corner in this particular Zoom call, Mark gets to go first. So Mark, what rabbit hole are you taking us down today? Okay, thank you, Corrine. So basically, when I was thinking of a book to choose for this episode, I thought back to our recent Indigenous Peoples Day episode, and I sort of thought about some of the different books from around the world by Indigenous people, different cultures and different places that... I maybe haven't really read any authors from these places before. So when I was looking through some of them, I found authors from like Australia, uh, South America, and Africa. And I ended up settling on this one by Nyuguji Wa Tiongo, The Perfect Nine, The Epic of Kikuyu and Mumbi. So a little bit of background on Tiongo, because he's actually a very prominent writer and academic in his native country of Kenya. He primarily writes in his native language and has long been an advocate for African languages and literatures. He's been writing since, I think, it's all the way back to the 1960s. He's been a very politically active writer. He's been like, gotten in trouble with dictatorship governments and various other people over the years. So he definitely has been very um, outspoken and active in his beliefs and advocacy for his language, his people, and for justice. This year, he also was awarded the 2012 Penn Nabokov Award for Achievement in International Literature for this particular work, as well as his um, overall body of work over the years. And this book itself is actually a retelling of a traditional oral story of the origins of the Kikuyu people who Tiongo is descended from. And essentially, the story itself is written in sort of like a free verse kind of speech. So it gives like an oral kind of storytelling quality to it. You can tell it comes from a more traditional kind of story in the way it is written and presented. 
And the story itself tells the story of uh, Gikuyu, which means man, and Mumbi, which means woman, the two progenitors of the nine tribes of the Gikuyu people, located in what is now known as Kenya. Their ancestral lands are primarily in the central region surrounding Mount Kenya, and these lands are very noticeable in the narrative of the story. And Gikuyu and Mumbi have 10 daughters, Wanjiru, Wambui, Wanjiku, Wangui, Wathira, Njeri, Muthaga, Wairimu, Wangari, and Warisia. And together they make the perfect nine. And the term means something sort of like nine plus one. You have 10, but it's the perfect nine, kind of in the same way that a baker's dozen is actually 13. And I couldn't find any particular background on this term or its history. So I sort of feel like it's an invention of Tiongo himself. All the different kind of traditional versions of the story that I could find online only made mention of nine daughters. So I sort of feel like this is his own kind of contribution to the story itself. Because the 10th daughter, Warija, is not present in any of the traditional stories, nor is any other daughter in the stories that has a physical disability and is unable to walk like Warija is. This sort of is like an interesting contribution because this character is very much not diminished at all in her abilities or her standing among her sisters. We sort of see throughout the narrative that she's just as capable and determined as her sisters with her intelligence. She's skilled in archery and other matters. So it sort of is like an interesting kind of addition that displays kind of like different abilities of different people throughout the story. Now, Kikuyu and Mumbi are seeking to find partners for their daughters to bring about the creation of new tribes to inhabit the lands they have roamed together over the years before they settled down and had kids. Uh, so they announced their intentions to attract suitors from across the surrounding lands, which presumably is all of Africa, but it might also include the world in general, because they don't really give a specific geographic frame on this, but sort of is presumably almost everyone. So 100 men come seeking marriage from the perfect nine, drawn by the words of their beauty and fame, and they are welcomed to their lands by Kikuyu, Mumbi, and the perfect nine, both come with feast, ceremony, to mark the arrival before presenting them with a challenge. And they must go on a journey to the mountain of the moons and reach its summit and retrieve a hair from the tongue of the great ogre, Wengeka, before they will be allowed to marry their daughters. But above all, however, anyone not deemed fit in character by their daughters will not be allowed to marry any of them, regardless of any feats of strength, courage, or character on their journey. The final decision itself is always in the hands of the perfect nine themselves. And this journey sort of occupies the main thrust of the novel as they undergo a series of trials and tribulations that leads to the death of many of the men as they traverse crocodile-infested swamps and rivers, snow-capped mountaintops, and conflicts amongst themselves on topics ranging from the achievements of the men in places of their origin, the proper conduct of a person, and the destructiveness of war and other petty disagreements. We also get to see the strength of the sisterhood between the Perfect Nine and their character through the trials they overcome with the men who seek to marry them. They're always supporting one another through reassurance, support, praise one another's beauty as Black women, and reminding each other that they're always together, no matter what some man who seeks to marry them may think. They also are very much forceful as they clap back and shut down the few men who express sort of misogynist or chauvinist beliefs, such as that they should serve the men after marriage, or that only a witch or some other nefarious woman could outclass a man in archery, hunting, or similar pursuits. There's also a certain place for the kind of spiritual beliefs on the place of life in the universe, that the journey is always just beginning, the beginning of the new 10 clans, that life may have a beginning and an end, but it also does not have an end because life itself is always continuing unending. 
these kinds of like spirituality and beliefs that are rooted in, in culture, Tiango very much brings to the forefront throughout the story. And this sort of combination of culture, celebration of the feminine, and a firm belief in Black excellence really brings the narrative to another level. So if that journey sounds at all interesting or what I've mentioned about Tiango, then I would recommend that you read The Perfect Nine, Epic of Gakuyu and Mumbi. Fantastic. Thank you, Mark. And for kind of blowing my mind about the whole baker's dozen thing. A little bit, a little bit. All right. Um, Virginia, you are up next. What was your rabbit hole? How did you, what was the path that you took to get to this particular? I think most of my rabbit holes happened because of this podcast. So thank you to all my book friends for choosing random topics. And that usually helps me discover a lot of rabbit holes because then you end up like reading a book that you didn't think you would normally pick up and then you end up really liking it. And so you try to start looking for read alike, starting to looking for like, what else has this author has written? Or sometimes, you know, when you're trying to find a book that fits the topic and then you discover like five others that you wanted to read. So that's usually because of this podcast. I would say in the past two years, my TBR has definitely expanded exponentially because of this. So thank you, book friends, for that. When I saw the topic, two books came to mind, and I think they are the ones who are responsible for quite a few different rabbit holes that I've been in and still in these days. And I'm going to bring these two books up again because I love them so much. I know you're probably tired of hearing about it. Uh, but the first one, of course, is Multiple Choice by Alejandro Sambra, translated by Megan Madawo. This is the one I talk about in the unconventional format. So, And then the other one is The Twilight Zone by Nola Fernandez, translated by Natasha Wimmer. And again, both books have expanded my world into works in translation by Latin American authors. Prior to that, most of my works in translation tend to be from Japan. That was what I really fell in love with. But now I have expanded into other different countries. I'm really, really excited about them. And there's, there's so many more, much more to discover. And of course, the other rabbit hole that these two Chilean novels led me to is my weird specific obsession with books about dictatorship. Um, so those are the two rabbit holes that I have been in and still in continue to, to be delighted by all the things that I get to discover. I'm starting to build a small collection myself of books that are translated from Spanish. So the book that I chose for today, it's one that I will explain later why this is especially um, out of all the ones that I have read so far that I wanted to talk about in this uh, episode. Our protagonist would probably tell you that this is his dental autobiography. This is the story of Gustavo Sanchez Sanchez, known to his friends as Highway. And Highway started off as a security guard for a juice factory in Mexico City. And then one day he was promoted to become the resident counselor. He has no training, but after a particular incident that has occurred, he was able to calm down and console one of his fellow co-workers, and they thought that he has the skills to become the counselor. So here you are, you are now the counselor. And they sent him to courses all over the country, but his services wasn't really needed. There's nobody needing counseling. So he was kind of thinking about what should I do now? And then he heard that a fellow security guard has found a career and success in this career in become an auctioneer. So he decided that, hey, that sounds like the perfect job for me because I have always liked to be a collector. I have been collecting things ever since I was young. In fact, the first thing that he has collected was his father's fingernails that his father has a habit of chewing off. And I'm going to let you discover that story yourself. He thought, you know what? 
auctioneering sounds like my kind of thing. So under the tutelage of the master auctioneer Oklahoma, he learned the secrets and the art of auctioneering. And as he discovered, the value of an object is not actually the object itself. It doesn't really matter what the object is. It is all about the stories that an auctioneer tell about those objects. And that is the way, the only way to change the value of an object. And he has become quite a successful auctioneer. He soon became quite well known. And his skills is going to be tested in an upcoming auction that a church has asked him to host. And in this auction, he is going to sell off his collection of teeth. Teeth that belong to famous people like Plato, like Rousseau, like Virginia Woolf, and many more. And these 10 teeth, of course, all have a story. And a story that sometimes explains why these famous people are famous. What makes these famous people famous are happened because of their teeth. And now you may wonder, wait, did the teeth really belong to Plato or Virginia Woolf? Well, no, of course not. They are all his own teeth. They all belong to Highway himself. Highway has always hated his own teeth. They are all crooked in his mouth and he hated them ever since he was young. So when he was at an auction one day and he saw that up for sale, is Marilyn Monroe's teeth, he needs to have them. So he bought them and he immediately transplanted them into his own mouth, but he saved 10 of his own teeth. And now he is going to sell them off. Now you might think, well, that's just lying, isn't it? Well, no. As Sanchez pointed out, it's not lying. It is just more an elegant surpassing of the truth. So could Highway be able to sell off these teeth for a profitable price? Well, this is the story of My Teeth by Valeria Luiselli. And this is definitely one experimental philosophical fiction that is actually fun to read. And it's not just like a constant head scratcher, like many experimental fiction is like. And I think it's made really approachable because of the voice of our protagonist, Gustavo Sanchez Sanchez. And I can just listen to him tell his stories all day. And this is a book that has so many stories. It's one that is made up of all different kinds of story. We've got the story of Highway himself. And often his story is filled with familiar names. He might have a neighbor named Dostoevsky. Um, you know, it's, it's filled with like lots of like characters that you might recognize. Not only do we have the story of Highway himself, we also, of course, are treated to the stories of all the objects that Highway sold during the different auctions that happened in the book. And here again, Louis Sally plays with incorporates a lot of well-known names into these stories. Then we have photographs, photographs that depict the different places where the story takes place, including Disneylandia, Highway's host that he built himself, or the bike pavilion where he bought his bike, or the bar that Highway held his last auction, his crowning achievement where he invented a new type of auctioneering technique. And all of these places are referenced by the author 
of the biography. Someone highway has asked to write down his story, even though he keeps insisting this is an autobiography. Well, like, you know, the writer always seems like, no, 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 this is a biography because I wrote it for you. And that added another layer to Highway's story. Each chapter begins with quotations that ponders the whole meaning of a name, the relationship of the name given to an object and the object that is being named. And then we have ending the each chapter slips of papers that you found in fortune cookies. And of course, all the fortunes have to do with teeth somehow. The conception of this novel itself is a story of its own because Luiselli was actually commissioned to write this story for a catalog for an art exhibition. And in Mexico, one of the largest private art gallery space and the exhibition space is actually owned by a juice factory. And so when she was asked to write a story, she was like kind of thinking, well, what's the relationship between this art space and this factory between the artists and the workers, like they're completely unrelated. So is there a way that she can bridge that gap through her literature? So what she did was she write her story as installments. And after she completed one section, she'll send it to the factory workers who have formed a reading group. And so when they read the story, their feedback, their comments will get recorded. They'll get sent back to Luiselli, and then she'll incorporate them, not just their thoughts, but sometimes even their own stories. And in fact, some of the factory workers actually appear in the book as characters. And the workers were all told that this is a story actually written by Gustavo Sanchez Sanchez and not Luiselli herself. And it was only at the end that she revealed that she is actually the author of all of this. Um, so she's decided to write a story for the workers, not just a about the workers and and making them visible in this art space. And and there's also another kind of element of collaboration to this story, which is really interesting. The version that we have in the English version is translated by Christina McSweeney. And there is actually in the English version a chapter, an extra chapter that doesn't appear in the Spanish version. And it's called the chronologic. This is the timeline on events that is written by the translator herself. And it's a timeline that have all the real events that are referenced in the novel, so it provides some context, but it also mixed with the timeline of fictional events of Highway's life. And this is sort of a way Louis Sally sort of make, again, making the translator also visible in, in her book. And one of the reasons why I chose this book was because there's a lot, as Gibbs, you can tell, there's a lot of name dropping in this book. Um, and Luiselli is trying to like bring and showcase a lot of fellow authors, especially in the book. And in the last auction that Highway does, where he like had this new technique that he does, He's selling off not objects, but stories. And a lot of these stories are about Luiselli's fellow Latin American writers, which means that I now my rabbit hole has expanded once again because I have so many more names to look up and to discover. So I'll leave you with uh, Sanchez's opening line for this book. As any other story, this one begins with the beginning and then comes the middle and then the end. The rest as a friend of mine always say, is literature. So this is a literature for you, waiting for you to discover. It is such a fun book. If you like books that are kind of experimental, that are kind of strange, that, you know, combines a lot of different elements, I think you will enjoy this one. So again, this is The Story of My Teeth by Valeria Luiselli, translated from Spanish into English by Christina McSweeney. That sounds wild. Wild. It has so many rabbit holes. It just looks like a piece of Swiss cheese, honestly. Like, I don't love the thing about the teeth. I will be honest. 
I know I heard you like groaning every time I say the word teeth. How about the fingernails? Is that better? Weirdly, yes. Really? Fingernails are fine. Teeth is gross. Teeth you have to pull out. No. Yeah. No. Fingernails are a renewable resource. It's fine. Anyways. Anyways. Except if people are cutting their fingernails on public transit, then they're monsters and they should be put into the pit. Yes. Anyways. Um, so our existential question for this particular episode has to do with the rabbit hole of all of us get interested in a particular topic or a particular genre or a particular theme. So I'm curious to see what rabbit hole we are all currently in. And I'm going to throw it over to uh, Gabriel first. Gabriel, where are you in the rabbit hole right now? Oh boy. Wow. Um, I think most of the rabbit holes I tend to go down are related to my own storytelling, whether that be uh, writing or whether that be more like Dungeons and Dragons-esque. So the one that stuck out to me the most, maybe not the most recent one, but one when I was coming up with a campaign was I did a lot of research into lumberjack folklore. Uh, specifically, they call the cryptids, they call them fearsome critters, especially in the Great Lakes region. And the concept of calling something a fearsome critter was it was just like beautiful. And all of their names, the names that they gave these animals were almost like complete gibberish. Like they don't look like the sort of thing that you would get out of like an English word, but they also weren't super obviously... <sighs> They, they weren't super obviously like another another language either. I remember, um, I think the one that I ended up using as the monster in my campaign was called a gumbaroo, which is almost like a bear, but it has like tough, shiny skin and it's, its hide is too strong. So bullets will like fall off it basically. Um, and it'll kind of, I believe, explode. They were supposed to be what caused forest fires basically. So Gumbaroos hide behinds are another really famous one, and they do exactly what the name suggests. They hide behind trees. So fearsome critters, I, I remember being one of the most fun rabbit holes I got to go down. More recently, uh, the story that I'm writing is set in Iowa, so I know far too much about Iowa. I did a lot of research into the Grotto of the Shrine of the Redemption, which is a shrine, a Christian shrine made entirely of seashells, and it was sort of like someone had a had a vision and they created this thing and now it's a tourist trap and there's an RV park beside it and lot, lots of information just on what you can and can't do when you're trying to live out of your car in Iowa. So that was a little less fun. Definitely had more fun with the fearsome critters. But yeah, I think that usually there's something that triggers it in terms of like maybe a storytelling or a creative pursuit more than just I saw something strange on the news and then I kind of went in that path so well i didn't see that coming at all uh okay uh mark what is your your current obsession um i guess one of the current obsessions i have had is i've recently started reading the poet arthur rimbaud and there's a lot of different lore about the life of rimbaud and his work and everything else and i've just sort of been reading up on that a little bit plus there's also a lot of literature and non-fiction about him so for example there's a fictional account of his life called Disaster Was My God by Bruce Duffy. I've started, I'm about to start reading that one. Um, there's also another nonfiction book about him and his relation to the Paris Commune of the 1870s, when workers basically rose up and kicked out all the authorities of a part of Paris for about two months. And Rimbaud has sort of been associated with this aspect of 
French history a little bit. He's also been associated with his trips to Africa at the time. So just sort of learning about these different aspects of his life and his work as they sort of are intermingled together has been something that I've been reading about a lot recently. It's been quite the fascinating experience because if anyone's ever read Rimbaud, he has very idiosyncratic tendencies in his writing as well as his uh, somewhat erratic life, leaving home, living with another poet before ditching him, running off to Africa. All these various adventures of his have been quite the interesting rabbit hole to go down. So just a cool, fun, light, frivolous summer pursuit. Got it. All right, Virginia, what about you? So I thought I was out of this rabbit hole, but then I just read two books recently. One of them, <laughs> I mean, you know what is coming. Uh, one of them is Otesha Moshfei's new book, uh, La Bona. And then I also read another book that's coming up called Mother Thing. And both of them have cannibalism in them so cannibalism is back apparently i didn't i did not know that did not know that cannibalism will be involved in here so i guess i might be back in that hey they found me i didn't like i didn't look for them they found me so yeah back on your nonsense virginia back on it yeah yeah so am i uh <laughs> my current rabbit hole is of course bts but through that, I, this is like my summer of language learning. And I've recently become very obsessed with like French podcasts. I know, I know, I know. But like French true crime podcasts, because their libel laws are loose. They can say a lot of things. I'm like, oh, should you be, should, should the lawyer be saying that? Should you be interviewing that lawyer? And should they be just kind of sharing this information? I don't think they should. So yes, that is that is my current interest. And I am kind of like fascinated into the, the legality of the French legal system. And what you can say on just a free podcast that everyone can listen to. Which, funnily enough, leads me into my rabbit hole of a book. So if you have ever had a credit card or debit card declined, which I have, I think we have all been there at one point in our lives, you know that feeling, that horrible thousand pound weight in your stomach mixed with a heady cocktail of shame, embarrassment, confusion, and sweating, just so much sweating. You could be at the grocery store and there is a ton of food that you have just carefully selected and picked and the clerk is looking at you with a bored and angry expression on their face and you just feel this panic this horrible panic of what you thought was going to be something easy or that you thought was going to happen isn't going to happen now imagine this exact same experience but you are in another country you are in marrakesh and you have been asked by your very best friend to stay at this very private, very posh resort. It has a pool. You get your own private butler. There's five-star meals. It's, it's the works. It's the works. And the best part about it is that your best friend has said that they are going to cover everything. And why shouldn't they? They're independently wealthy. They're rich. They're a, a trust fund, baby. You can trust me. You th think that this is just a great opportunity to have an all-expenses-paid vacation. 
Of course, your friend says that they're doing a little bit of work for their art foundation that they're setting up. So there might be a videographer is coming along, but don't worry, he's paid for. And we're just here to have a great time. Except now you are sitting in that hotel room with the manager of the hotel and two extremely bulky, extremely angry looking large hotel employees who are staring you down, demanding that someone needs to pay for this. And your friend, who you have seen living in a beautiful hotel in New York, who always has the latest accessories, the newest iPhone, the most beautiful, impeccable clothes, goes to all the right parties, is looking everywhere but at you. So there must be some sort of mistake, and your friend says that they'll get the money, so you, a small barely middle-class person, hand over your credit card for $70,000. So far, so good. And then you go to a, a private chalet to get a beautiful tour of a villa and a, a private guide to kind of take you around the grounds. And at the end, they ask you for a donation of $1,600 and your friend says, oh, I forgot my credit card at the hotel. Could you just cover this again? And so again, you pick out your credit card with shaking hands, hand it over to the employee and declined. And declined again, and declined again, and declined again. And that horrible feeling, that thousand pound weight, that embarrassment, that shame and the confusion hit you all at once. Everything that you thought was taken care of, everything that you thought was right, everything that you thought this vacation was going to be, it is not. Everything has been a lie. I love a story about a grifter. This kind of rabbit hole comes from a television show, which I really enjoyed, which was called Leverage, which kind of dovetailed into a great article in The Atlantic written by Rachel Monroe, which is called The Perfect Man Who Wasn't. For years, he used fake identities to charm women out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. Then his victims banded together to take him down. Two, the French podcast uh, La Casanova de Montréal, put out by QUB Bureau d'Enquête which led to bad blood, which led to, of course, my friend Anna, the true story of a fake heiress by Rachel Deloach Williams. Now, some of you might have heard about the particular Netflix series that was a fictionalized version of this baffling wild story of how a, oh, how to describe her, sociopath? but who had the right look and the right clothes was able to charm her way into the highest echelons of New York society and get away with paying for nothing for a very long time. This is written by Rachel, who was her best friend, who was the person at that hotel in Marrakesh when everything started tumbling down and all the lies started unraveling. But this is her story and written from a place of confusion of love of acceptance it is a fascinating insider look at how someone can manipulate you and how con artists work on particular people or on particular societies 
It is fascinating. And for a lot of the previous stories that I read, it was a lot of men running con works, especially that Casanova fraud where they date a whole bunch of ladies and then take them for all their money. And then the victims are too ashamed or too embarrassed to really kind of get any justice. And a system is not set up to give them justice as many of the police just say they have been on a bad date. However, we have seen with kind of uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Anna Delvey, this kind of new emergence of essentially young, blonde, white ladies who can say kind of the right thing, who kind of look like they have money, getting away with everything because the wealth and their appearance kind of blinds us to all of their faults and all of the red flags that we should be seeing are instantly dismissed by who they are and what they look like. Oh, uh, after you read this book, you might never trust anyone again. And maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you shouldn't, but you should definitely not trust heiresses ever. And, and never loan anyone money. Anything over 20 bucks? No. All right. That is my, <laughs> my story. Are you surprised, Virginia? Are you surprised? No, no, of course not. Of course not. The Netflix series is a bit silly and um, that this book has a new afterwards that kind of talks about her feelings about it, which are not great. Um, but anyways, okay, I have to come down from the high of talking about my current obsession to kind of like back to host hat and we turn this over to gabriel gabriel what is the rabbit hole that you went down well there are many a rabbit hole that i have stumbled into over the years uh some have been helpful to my psyche and some have caused me at least like 10 points of psychic damage uh and one spiral staircase that i i think i find myself falling down a little too often is horror so everything from like creepy pastas which i shouldn't i should never read and I always do. So horror podcasts to like the semi-true stories that you hear around the campfire. Even earlier this episode, I I pretty much defaulted to folklore, to the weird things in the world. And this book is kind of like a physical manifestation of many of these interests. And I think it's actually maybe the second nonfiction in a row that I've done, which is interesting. I don't usually think of myself as a nonfiction reader, but there are certain... There are certain types of nonfiction that can kind of pull me in. So it is the first installment in Aaron Mankey's World of Lore series, which was based on the content that he wrote and researched for his podcast that is just called Lore. He also had a short television series that was adapted from his podcast, which I saw a little bit of, but the book suits his storytelling style way more than the TV show. This is probably one of those only times where I'll be like, no, I think you should read the book. The TV show's not. <laughs> the TV show's not good. So the first book published back in 2017, and it's called Monstrous Creatures. So following some stories more about the creature side as opposed to maybe particular people or settings, it is very much about some of the creatures that we encounter in folklore. So Mankey's interest lies in the horrific and the supernatural and the folklore that comes from our collective consciousness and sort of narrative histories. That's one thing that is absolutely amazing about his research style, and it really comes through in the book. He's so good at finding these firsthand accounts and then just embellishing enough where you might not have it. So it's one thing to read about maybe someone discovering something 
a little bit strange. And it's another thing to hear about like the tools that they use to do it or the the sort of emotions that he's able to inject into these scenes is really, really I would say it's a gift. It's it's one of the reasons why I was wanting to pick up this book. I've listened to the podcast on and off, and I was curious about how it would transfer over to a book because even the way that he narrates the podcast is incredibly like literary. <laughs> it it made sense that it would go very well into it. And from looking online, it seems like there might be a decent amount of overlap in the content. So you could potentially just listen to the podcast as an audiobook, but if you prefer actually reading it, I I don't think you're really losing anything because he has a style that really isn't afraid to get personal and isn't afraid to uh, sort of talk about his his own fears, but just in a very human sense, not necessarily like I'm reading about Aaron Mankey. Like I am reading about this this narrator. I am reading about this narrator who is very empathetic to the people that he is exploring through history. So using a blend of history, philosophy, psychology, as I mentioned, he really likes looking at the human psyche and the concept of fear and the reason why these stories really stick with us. Mankey kind of delves into the creatures that sort of haunt our dreams and lurk at the corners of our eyes. They're very grounded in reality. They're very real and tangible. And I think it's evocative in a way that I rarely see from nonfiction, especially from historical text. And so I was very grateful for that because of the, the conversational tone. He shows the consequences and the evidence, but also expands beyond it to talk about the way these things influence culture and how they can kind of provide commentary on the reason why we react to certain things the way we do without feeling overly pretentious. Like he's very good at sort of just taking it back to the basic root, which in a lot of cases is just, we're all scared of the dark. We're all scared of the unknown, like a very human, very basic way of talking about it. So there's no real answers in monstrous creatures. He's not trying to prove or disprove any of the stories that he's talking about, but he does provide a strong basis through which to understand why our stories have developed the way they have. So predominantly it's focused on North American and European history delving into uh, specific narrative accounts and regional histories. And some of this is because pulling from historical documents, the access to translated documents would be a little bit different than uh, something that was originally written in English. And it really focuses in more on a lot of Western histories, but it includes stories like the Jersey devil in New Jersey or Mothman in West Virginia or the art of seances or planes that collide in an otherwise empty sky. And you get amazing tidbits of like these historical facts and misconceptions, as well as insights into our previous understanding of science and medicine, which is something that I always really find interesting in the ways that we assume something is kind of monstrous, just because we don't have a full understanding of what it is yet. For instance, did you know that they used to bury bodies with a piece of string attached to a bell? So that if someone had accidentally been buried alive, you could ring the bell and get help. And what do you think happens when you hear that bell ringing in the graveyard at the dead of night? Might be the wind. Could be something far worse. Or is it proof that a vampire has been feeding if there seems to be fresh blood running through the heart of a new corpse? So a lot of different questions and perspectives into why we might have assumed things function the way they did uh, and the way that science sometimes debunks them, but it doesn't matter because these concepts still 
sort of stick with us in our in our culture. The book is split into a few sections, so it's got titles like The Dead Returned or Back to Nature or Our Other Haves. <laughs> Lots of stories about creepy dolls, which I, I truly hate. And I enjoyed reading the ones where Mankey examined weird historical events or more existential monsters we face, as opposed to just like werewolves or poltergeists or serial killers, although those are cool. So curses, cannibals, echoing sounds from the depths of the sea, mysterious drumming noises that sound too close to a heartbeat. I love that kind of that kind of monster that doesn't really have a physical form, but it's something that you can kind of feel deep, deep in yourself. And I think that he picks out a whole bunch of these that are really interesting and also provides some of the context um, for how they've moved through our popular culture, which is I, I really liked. So if any of those stories sound interesting to you or you're curious about how folklore has moved through our world, then I would highly recommend picking up The World of Lore, Monstrous Creatures by Aaron Mankey or one of the others in the series, Wicked Mortals or Dreadful Places. He's got a great writing style, and I am always a sucker for things that make me scared to go to sleep at night. What's insomnia in the face of great literature? All right. Well, as they say in Alice in Wonderland, begin at the beginning, and when you come to the end, stop. And that is what we will do right now. So thank you to all of my book friends and all of our book friend listeners. Listeners? Nope. I will think of a better portmanteau later. Uh, thank you so much. And we hope that you have as much success as we have had going down that rabbit hole. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.